North Carolina music history is the story of a houseplant in a dusty corner that gets just enough water to live. It parallels childhood experiences of being free to roam as long as one was home around the time it got dark outside. Compared to hit-making empires in New York or Nashville, the Old North State had a music scene that, a bit like the early British colonies in America, was largely left on the back burner. Anyone that became known beyond their region or the state had to have a combination of more talent, initiative, and ambition than might have sufficed in the music meccas of America. They had to go to a bigger city far away to get discovered, like Charlie Poole or Nina Simone, or have someone with connections notice them on a trip to their corner of Carolina, like Doc Watson or Etta Baker. Peter Holsapple took the former route when he went to New York in the late 1970s to join his bandmates Chris Stamey, Gene Holder, and Will Rigby as they began their journey in the DBs, a beginning which has been brought into sharp focus on the new collection of remastered early singles, demos, and live recordings titled I Thought You Wanted to Know, 1978 to 1981. I suppose that's true. When we went to New York, when I went to New York to join the DBs, uh, Chris, Will, and Gene were already up there in about 1978. Um, we had the advantage of having honed our craft a little. You know, a lot of the stuff in New York was very DIY, and it was a lot of folks that weren't in bands before, and they just wanted to get up there and make a racket, and, you know, that was really great stuff, you know? It was really primitive, and it was really beautiful. And so it helped us become something different from that by having had some kind of um, process of, of learning the instruments and learning to write songs. Chris and I were just brimming with songs. We were just, they were exploding out of us. That is our guest, Peter Holsapple, who talks with us about the DB's new retrospective, how his musical upbringing in the hyper-local scene in Winston-Salem, North Carolina served him well as an adult, his lifelong musical friendships, the seemingly unlikely influence of Mott the Hoople, and much more in this episode of Southern Songs and Stories. Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. 
Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW, at WNCW.org. In the early 1960s, at the age of six, Peter Holsapple moved with his family from Greenwich, Connecticut to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You might think that his chances for landing a record deal would be greatly diminished down south. After all, there were only a handful of record labels operating within striking distance of Winston-Salem and where Peter went to college in Chapel Hill. There were a fair number of good recording studios, though, and with a little bit of moxie and money, artists could book time at a place like Arthur Smith Studios in Charlotte, for example, and distribute the 45s themselves. Peter's new home would seem to make it harder for him to wind up on the path that he would choose, and it did in some ways. But there were like minds awaiting him upon his arrival, and together they overcame the limitations of North Carolina's relative isolation. I asked Peter about his first experiences in Winston-Salem and if he felt any culture shock upon arriving. Maybe more for my parents than for me, you know. Um, My parents were older when they had me. My dad came down from New York uh, where he had worked at First National City Bank and got a nice position with Wachovia Bank uh, in Winston-Salem. And my mom came down and I, you know, uh, I think she might have been a little resentful having to leave Connecticut and trying to be a social person there with her friends and having to learn a whole new world uh, in North Carolina. I mean, I remember when she and I first got to Winston-Salem, I think it was probably January 63. We came down in December of 62 and January 1963. And we went to Cook's Warehouse to see a tobacco auction because our hosts in town thought that that would be illuminating. You know, Winston-Salem, it's all about the tobacco, Camel City. Um, And so we went. But the thing that I took away from that was that I saw white and colored restrooms. And I'd never seen that before. And I asked my mom what that was, and she didn't seem to know. Um, So that was an eye-opener. You know, we were there for the desegregation of the school system. When I was in third grade, my friend's mom would, would walk up and down protesting in front of our school until her daughter was let into class. Great young woman. Um, and then the schools got desegregated in fifth grade, and I met a lot more friends that I still have today. So that was all an interesting learning process for me to see all that take place. I wonder if I'd seen stuff like that it, had I stayed in Connecticut. The, the Connecticut question is one – you're asked about rethinking the DBs. The Connecticut question is one that has come up for me because I left at six and I wondered if I would have – chosen this path? Would I have done that? Would I have had the experience that I had, the the immersive world of the Winston-Salem culture that I got thrown into? I mean, I feel like the people that I grew up with were all smart and fair and interesting and honest. And, um, and, and I seem to be right because so many of them are still friends of mine and close friends of mine, like Will Rigby from the DBs and Bob Northcott from Little Diesel and, um, and Mitch and Chris and Gene um, and Ed Bumgardner and Rob Slater, all of these people that I've known for ages. They're all still playing. What? 
you know, there must have been something in the air. I like to think it was the smell of the tobacco curing that we all smelled in the mornings before we went to school. But I don't know. It was, a, it was definitely a culture shock, I think. But at six, it was harder to sort of get a vibe on that, I think, in an overall picture. I was just, you know, I just wanted to play guitar and have a girlfriend, you know? And listen to the Beatles records and figure out who was that band singing Let's Get Lost on a Country Road. Oh, the Kit Kats. Okay. You know, <clears throat> that sort of thing. I just wanted the eye-opening experience. I wanted to become a better listener. I had a big brother, 11 years older, that was a classically trained organist and pianist and chorister. And I got a lot from him. And I had a great band director at school. John Shelton, who was an eye-opener. I had a great choir director at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Helen Cornwall. All of these people made music seem like a fantastic thing, an adventure of some sort, a thing that you could get better at if you were good at it. So I thought, well, I don't really think the the career as a stock car driver is going to work out. I don't think a minister is going to work out. I, I cuss too much. Um, let's rock. And so I did. Yes, you're bit of Soul Kiss by the DBs from I Thought You Wanted to Know, which, like all of the band's material, does not feature the cussing that Peter said he was prone to, but does give us another example of what sound he and his bandmates would create as young adults in New York City. There is a lot more to detail in what led up to those halcyon days, however, and I asked him to describe just how different and seemingly challenging his circumstances were as an up-and-coming artist in Winston-Salem. Well, that's very true. Um, we were fortunate in Winston-Salem to have a bunch of really good radio stations. Um, we had WTOB, we had WAIR, we had WAAA. Um, so, and then we also had a thing called Deacon Light at WFDD, uh, which is where we heard a lot of underground stuff first. Uh, and that was very cool. Uh, it was a lot of uh, searching for stuff. I think growing up, uh, you know, we saw the Beatles. Everybody saw the Beatles at that point on Ed Sullivan and started a band because of that. And then everything else we had to kind of locate. I remember listening to clear what was referred to as clear channel radio back in the 60s. And we would listen to WCFL in Chicago uh, to a show called Ron Britton's Subterranean Circus. And he would play all sorts of weird stuff. He, I think that's the first place I heard the first King Crimson record, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, so you could hear this stuff, but you had to find it. Um, also in Winston-Salem, we had a record store called Resnick's, where I eventually ended up working. But when I was a preteen, I would go there and the, the, uh, the older guys, you know, it's always the older guys, um, would say, 
Oh uh, yeah, that James Taylor record, that's pretty good, but maybe you want to try uh, this Captain Beefheart record instead. See what you think of that. And I'm going to the listing booth and it's like, okay, yeah. Um, so there was a lot of that. Uh, and having a group of like-minded friends that uh, really appreciated the music and then also a very strong band scene in Winston-Salem from the five royales on down. You know, in the 60s, we had the kiddie shows at the Carolina Theater and the Winston Theater. And you would go there on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. Your parents would drop you off. You'd play bingo, win a six-pack of tall 16-ounce Coca-Colas, see a movie, and hear a local band or two. And, the, you know, I mean, it took a while for me to make the connection between what I was seeing there and what uh, I saw on Ed Sullivan. But I finally made that leap of faith in my head. Um, and then we started playing, you know, everybody sort of learned an instrument and we had a lot of people that learned to play. And we had a very, very strong scene of players from, uh, I would say these guys, you know, a lot of them were older guys and a bunch of them were around my age, like Mitch, Mitch Easter. Uh, who was a year older than me, and he was very advanced and very good on his instrument, and um, and you know we go see his bands. So it was a lot of a lot. It was hard in Winston Salem, without a doubt. We had to do the searching for ourselves. You tell people that in an internet age that you had to like get the Schwann catalog and look up the look up the numbers of the record there, or you couldn't find the third Velvet Underground record, but you knew it was MGM S four six one seven and you just couldn't find it. So, you know, it was a lot of search and, um, and seek missions. And that was fine because we were up for it. You know, we'd go to Greensboro, go to the record stores there, see what we could come up with. That was cool. Well, it took a lot of ambition and a lot of real talent too. So you really hit on some things. The, the sort of pool of talent from Winston-Salem back in the day. Did you know about bands like the Five Royales or were you aware of the other people who preceded you? For me, for Winston-Salem stuff, my first understanding that there were actually people playing was probably the bands at the Kitty shows, like the Five Satans and the Teen Beats and groups like that. Um, and some of those guys made records. You know, they made 45s. Dick Bennick, who was a local DJ and eventually became a horror movie guy called Dr. Paul Bearer. And that's a whole other thing. Uh, but he produced a bunch of records uh, for local bands. Um, and, and so that was sort of where I started realizing, oh, people are doing this around here. So I had a little band when I was in third grade, fourth, third grade, fourth grade, I guess. Dana and the Blue Jays, two guys with acoustic guitars and a guy playing a snare drum with a cymbal. And we all had the, you know, we all read out of the Golden Beatles songbook. And, you know, I'm sure we sounded like two, you know, nine-year-olds with acoustic guitars and a 10-year-old with a drum, you know. But we played and we learned. And I think that the, we learned how to learn songs. I learned that also a lot from being with Mitch in bands over the years. Um, we had a band when I was in 10th grade called Rittenhouse Square, and we made a record in 1972. We went to Greensboro and recorded six songs. And being in a band with Mitch was really great because he is an extraordinary musician. He is incredibly natural at his craft. Um, I don't think I've ever heard him hit a wrong note on guitar. Uh, he will 
take me to task for that, I'm sure. Unknown caller. Excuse me? So anyway, Mitch Easter. Playing in a band with Mitch Easter was an incredible experience for me because he just knows how to pick apart a song. And that also shows up in his own songwriting, I think. Um, the many parts that he comes up with that are unique and fabulous. Um, but when you learn to do that stuff with him, you learn how to work with another player also. A lot of the stuff we did in Rittenhouse Square was like the first three songs Three of the first four songs we learned were Wishbone Ash songs, okay? So dual guitar, right? So I had to work, I had to raise my game to play with Mitch. And I did, I think, you know, I, we became different musicians and different styles, but we started with a lot of the same stuff and that was really cool. You know, it was, it's like playing tennis with somebody better than you. You should always try to do that and your game will improve. So we had a lot of people like that in Winston-Salem. You're just a rock and roll queen, you know what I mean. I'm just a rock and roll star. From thousands of miles east of Winston-Salem, this is Mott the Hoople, an English band that, like Wishbone Ash and the Beatles, figured prominently in the minds of Peter Holsapple, Chris Stamey, Gene Holder, and Will Rigby in the years leading up to and during their time together in the DBs. As you will hear coming up, this song, Rock and Roll Queen, from Mott the Hoople's self-titled debut from 1970, was one that Peter, Chris, and Mitch covered in the band he just mentioned, Rittenhouse Square. Now, it is no surprise that British invasion bands would have been so impactful to these North Carolina teens and teenagers everywhere in that era, but to my ears, Mott the Hoople seemed to be a stark contrast with the DBs, at least as far as their larger-than-life presentation. I asked Peter what drew him to that band. Well, we were life-size, you know, not larger than life. Um, and you have to have that so you can see the larger-than-life people. But, you know, you think about Mata Hoople and you think Queen opened for them on tour and see where Queen got and see where Mata Hoople got. Um, we loved Mott. All of us loved Mott. We loved the power. We loved that first album a lot. Um, the high school band with Mitch and Chris that cut the record, we played – uh, rock and Roll Queen live because it's just a balls-to-the-wall rock song. You know, my high school band at prep school did Walking with a Mountain, and that's a great song. We just, you know, the power of the band, Yeah, I mean, you can say the DBs don't really sound like Mott, but we had the energy. And, you know, it was the energy that we brought into the early days of the band, especially was a product of listening to all of this stuff. We loved the New York Dolls, but we didn't sound like the New York Dolls. You know, we loved the move. We didn't really sound like the move either. But, you know, we just sounded like, hopefully, some kind of amalgam of the good stuff we got to listen to from when we were kids, starting with, you know, when we flipped on the radio in the car. Your new collection follows your work with Chris Stamey going back a few years. Our back pages where you went back and did sort of an acoustic treatment or more of an acoustic treatment. And now with, I thought you wanted to know, you've got a lot of early material that preceded the first DB's album. So what's going on here, Peter? Are you just more reflective? Is this conscious or, or did this just kind of come about? Because I know like, for example, Our Back Pages, you had recorded that a lot earlier than it finally was released. So is it just sort of a time in your life or your career where you want to look back and actually process all of this? 
Well, maybe. I mean, I think that the, we had done those uh, nice acoustic recordings of the DB songs when Chris and I were cutting Here and Now a few years ago. And we just really liked the way they sounded and we liked what they represented because we had played a lot of that stuff in our duo shows. Um, so it was important to us to try to get something like that out for people to get to hear. Um, as far as the uh, heritage release, let's say, um, it was uh, a situation where some of those songs had been released on a record called Ride the Wild Tom Tom that Rhino put out a few years ago, or many years ago, actually. No, <laughs> it's many years ago for almost everything. And so uh, we thought it might be fun to do a package that really took a left turn. And, um, and especially in the case of adding these live tracks that Chris Stamey worked really, really hard to get the source material for and to do his best to make sound good. A lot of this stuff was some guy out there with a cassette in his hand, a cassette recorder in his hand, a, you know, a Walkman, a recording Walkman, the high end of its time. And, um, and so he was able to find these things. And to me, that is the real significant triumph of I Thought You Wanted to Know is the live stuff because prior to listening down to the record i was pretty much of the opinion that we sucked live at best uh we were never terribly consistent we were always a better studio band i think um live we were not the strongest vocalists you know i mean that's why a band like R.E.M. succeeded is one reason. It's because they had a fantastic singer in Michael Stipe. Um, we didn't really have that. Chris and I were serviceable, and we made a significantly different sound when we sang together. So we wanted to show people that we really didn't suck live. And that was kind of great. You know, um, hearing these covers that we did, we really tore them up. And I remember thinking they were so much fun to do live, but I really didn't give them much thought afterward, you know. And so finding these and processing them that Chris did uh, for the record has been a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, it was probably a very meticulous process to clean up live tracks especially, but I know that the audio quality on I Thought You Wanted to Know is a is a step above Ride the Wild Tom Tom, so it seems like you must have taken some time. Chris is a very intense listener, and he is the guy to do that kind of thing with these tapes. I mean, he really took a lot of work and a lot of time to put that together, and he deserves our thanks for that. It is remarkable, isn't it, though? I mean... And even the even the New York rocker demos, the stuff like Nothing Is Wrong or What About That Cat, you know, those sound so much better now, too. They really are just significantly improved by modern recording processing techniques. And here is Nothing Is Wrong from I Thought You Wanted to Know.
I want to ask you about all of the various artists that you've collaborated with and all of the different folks that you've played with over the years. You know, I think the definition in the book of plays well with others ought to have your picture next to it, Peter, because you've done so well at this for so long. So what stands out as far as moments on stage or in studio with other artists? Well, one thing I would say is that's a great point about works well with others. And yet, Game Day, my solo record, is pretty much I played everything on it. I sang everything on it. I recorded it. I engineered it. So maybe I don't play well with others. Who knows? Um, Significant moments. Let me think. You know, I worked for about 26 years with Hootie and the Blowfish as their keyboard, guitar, steel guitar, mandolin guy. Um, And I had so many great moments with those guys. That 2019 tour that we did across America and into England before COVID hit was really nice. That was a really fantastic victory lap for me uh, to go out there and play these shows for all these people. You know, I mean, great REM shows, lots of marvelous REM shows. Uh, (laughs) I remember one with REM at uh, this place in Hamburg called Grosse Freiheit 36, which is on the site of the Cavern Club, or not the Cavern, excuse me, the, the, um, the Kaiser Keller, where the Beatles played. That's sort of the basement bar um, and I remember that we were at the end of the tour and Michael told the crew that they could drink after sound check, and the crew just let up a big whoop and was very happy about that. So, um, but you know, there are all kinds of marvelous memories. Uh, playing with the Continental Drifters, so many shows with that band were extraordinary because I, just, I always sort of liken that to being strapped to an out of control locomotive going down a hill with no breaks and singing at the same time, you know, a drink in one hand, a guitar in the other. Perfect. Um, and, you know, a lot of great times with the DBs too. I've had, I've had a marvelous career doing this. I'm really proud of the things that I've gotten to do. I don't regret much of anything that I've done. I wish I'd gotten, I wish I'd stopped drinking earlier, maybe than 19 years ago, but the last 19 years have been pretty great. I gotta say. Um, and what else? I don't know, getting to sing with a bunch of people that, you know, again, that's that whole thing of playing tennis with people that are better than you. Um, you know, singing with Susan Cowsill for years in the Continental Drifters made me a much better vocalist. Um, I, I'm just a fortunate guy, you know. I, I've had a great long career, and I hope to keep going until I drop dead. DBs with a live cover of the Chambers Brothers' Time Has Come Today from their 23-song collection, I Thought You Wanted to Know, 1978 to 1981. 
which is my cue that time has come for our episode to conclude here on Southern Songs and Stories. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed your time with us. Let us know what you think. You can contact us on our social media via Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can also drop a line by emailing southernsongsandstories at gmail.com. Would you take a moment and follow the series on the platform you're using? That really helps. And it'll help even more when you give us a top rating and a good review because our visibility to everyone using those platforms depends largely on followers, ratings, and reviews. Southern Songs and Stories is a part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of the series on WNCW and to Joshua Meng, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. At this point, I feel like, not to cop the Tom Petty analogy, but I do feel like I'm a receiver. And I do feel like the stuff that comes, comes when it's going to come. And I better grab it when it does. And I better have a guitar around and to try to work it out. Or I better be able to get out to the hit shed and see if I can get a track on it. And the fact that the muse has not uh, departed from these shores is really encouraging.